So I'm very, very delighted to welcome Professor Catherine Pope here, who's going to give this talk that's really hotly anticipated. Um, and we are very excited to learn that she is joining our department, the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences, as of Monday, um, to do great things in medical sociology. So over to you. No pressure. Thank you. <laughs> no okay. Um, so the disclaimers I have are that I'm from South London, so I talk quite fast um, and sometimes I get a bit animated and I often walk up and down. I might even walk that way, which can be a bit intimidating for people. So uh, the main thing is if you really don't understand something or I'm going so fast, you can put your hand up and stop me and I'll try to slow down and be a bit less South London and full on. Um, and then the other thing is that I am aware this is being recorded and I can get a bit passionate and sweary sometimes, but mindful that I'm being recorded um, and mindful of my new fan base at the back, I'm going to try very hard to be, you know, just contain that a bit. Um, so I might have to have you watch me and signal if I suddenly launch into they're, bad language. They're from Australia. Oh, <laughs> why didn't you say? It's all going to be fine then. Okay, so um, I often start these talks with um, just a bit about who I am, mainly because, I don't know if she's still there, but there used to be an opera singer called Catherine Pope and also a famous skateboarder called Catherine Pope. And I just don't want to disappoint you if you thought you were coming to see either of them. Okay, so I am the Catherine Pope who was involved in writing various things in the BMJ about qualitative research some time ago um, and a few little books about that. Uh, and I'll be drawing on some of uh, the knowledge from uh, some of the work that went into those papers tonight. Um, and can I just see a show of hands? Who are the students on the qualitative introduction? Just so that I know where you are. Right, okay, you've very cleverly spread yourselves all around. Okay, so um, one of the things that I said I would like to do in this lecture was uh, to talk about what it's really like, which is why there was that slightly sexy title of The Secret Diary, because you're being taught all of the proper stuff by the proper people about how it's meant to be done and what you, know, what you do. And I'm going to tell you some of the inside stories of what it's been like for me doing the kinds of qualitative um, ethnography and case study work that I've done over the last few years. Um, and I want to be open and honest about that so that you can kind of see it warts and all. Um, uh, and I hope that will be useful to you in terms of thinking about how you might use qualitative research. And I can see that there are some other very experienced qualitative researchers in the audience uh, who will also no doubt have their own stories to tell about some of these things. And you never know, we may disagree about some views, which is always good for an, um, an evening lecture, I think you know a bit of controversy anyway so I want to start with the famous Irving Goffman because his work inspired a lot of what I have done in terms of uh, reading Goffman's um, ethnographies and he talked in this uh, lecture that, that subsequently got written up about ethnography being 
a way of doing observation in settings that you subject yourself, your own body and your own personality and your own social situation to the set of contingencies that play upon a set of individuals so that you can physically and ecologically penetrate their circle of response to their social situation or their work situation or their ethnic situation or whatever. So you are close to them while they are responding to what life does to them. So that's the high point of the, this is what you should be doing when you're doing ethnographic observation and qualitative observation of a setting. And then another uh, guru in the field, Martin Hammersley, uh, who's written quite a lot of work around thinking about eth ethnography as a method, points out that actually a lot of us do not live up to Irving's behest. We do not actually live with the people we study. Uh, we don't reside in the same place, spending time with them most of the day, most of the week, the month, month in and month out. Instead, many sociological ethnographies, and I would say health services ethnographies also, focus on what happens in a particular work locale or social institution when it is in operation, so that in this sense their participant observation is part-time. And I think that's a really important criticism of what a lot of us do and it's something that we need to think about if we're going to take um, our work forward. So um, one of my fascinations, partly because I drink too much coffee, is I'm very interested in work at night in healthcare settings. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that so much research goes on during the day, particularly between 9 and 5. And obviously, there's lots of things that go on between 9 and 5 in a hospital or in a clinic situation. But there's a lot of fascinating stuff that also goes on at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and sometimes we don't bother to go and look at those sorts of things. So uh, I think these things are a reminder that we might need to think uh, a little bit more about how we... Um, engage with these methods. So what I want to do is share with you some observations about the kinds of things you see when you start to look. So for those of you that are sitting there and are thinking I don't even know what ethnography is, basically it's hanging around observing and talking to people and finding out what's going on and it reveals things that you won't get if you simply send people a survey or actually even if you just ask them things you won't get as much as you will if, uh, if you observe and start looking at the situations. So um, one of the projects I did was an ambulance handover project and when we set out I think we had a very naive view that there was this thing called handover which was and I'm illustrating now for my friends at the back. If you imagine I'm an ambulance, an ambulance rushes, that's me being an ambulance, to the door of the hospital and it hands over a patient. You take them out of the back of the ambulance and you hand them over some, to some doctors and nurses and then they go into the hospital. And we thought that bit was going to be really interesting and we would study it. And we found out lots of other things about ambulance handovers. And I'll tell you some more of those insights that we got from doing observation. But one of the observations was handover before you've even left the compound and the parking space. 
So this is uh, an ambulance crew member who's checking the rucksacks that ambulance crews carry. And inside the rucksacks are lots of little sealed bags with little tags on so that you know that they haven't been opened because then you know that they've got the right amount of whatever it is that you need in there. And the person that I'm working with is very experienced, seems to know what should be in each of the bags and what the contents are. And some of them have been signed by a packer and he talks to me about this, that he trusts these bags have got the right contents um, and then there's another crew member there who says that the things that are required are, are there and the crew member goes to the cupboard and collects some of the things that are missing to replenish the bag and it occurred to me that there were lots of different levels of trust in this very simple operation of picking the rucksack and deciding whether to take it and when we started looking at this bit of the handover chain of events, what we noticed was there were some crews who trusted that the rucksack would be okay if so-and-so said, it's, yeah, I didn't use anything, don't worry, that's fine. Others would meticulously go through it and check everything because they didn't trust the person that had handed the rucksack over to them. Um, so handover happened before we even got to a patient. There was this handover of the vehicle and the rucksack and all of the equipment. So that was an interesting thing that I hadn't even thought about when we started the project. And the other thing that the um, handover project showed us was the level of complexity in ambulance handovers. As I just described to you, we thought handover was this thing that happened over here at the door of the hospital. The crew say, here's your patient, please take them away and save their lives. And actually what happens is a whole series of complex bits of handover. And many of those are predicated on bits of technology that do or do not work, which is a thing I've thrown in just for Trish. Um, so one fascinating thing was there are various digital communication systems on the ambulance uh, and when they don't work everybody reaches in their pocket and pulls out their mobile phone which they're not meant to have their personal mobile phone with them at work but they do because they know they need to use it for when the digital stuff fails um, and bits of information may be handed over um, on the mobile phone. Um, there's also some fascinating equipment that's meant to give heart traces so that you can do fantastic stuff about finding out whether someone's having a heart attack and relay that information to the hospital ahead of your arrival and very often the battery doesn't work so actually that doesn't actually work so that bit of handover doesn't work. Um, but there's really interesting pathways of landline, mobile telephone, radio and computer data communication and many of these things happen way before we get to the door of the hospital. So hanging around on the ambulances you see all of that. If you go and talk to the managers of the ambulance service or the hospital, they may only talk about the bit at the door of the hospital because for them that's the important bit. But these bits may be important if you're thinking about information decay or some of the issues about team working and communication um, and patient, you know, how, how people care compassionately for patients and families. Another 
useful thing that I've taken to doing in when I'm doing observation um, and obviously you have to get ethical permission of, for this particularly if it includes pictures of people um, is to understand the context in which interventions are taking place. So a lot of the work that we do in healthcare is about introducing changes, new practices, quality improvement into healthcare settings. And one of the things that fascinated me on a project that uh, failed as an intervention was how crowded the intervention setting was with numerous different things that staff were expected to engage with as processes of change. So these are just some of the posters that I noticed when I was in a setting where we were trying to do our intervention. It was very difficult for the staff to see our intervention in amongst all of the other things that were going on. Um, so there were things there about changing in how, how you were going to do the recycling uh, in amongst things that were about patient safety. And you go around the hospital uh, that this particular um, study happened in and all the stairwells had multiple posters up about different things, studies that were going on, research, changes in policies and various things. You know, and basically everybody's just walking past everything because there's too much noise and too much uh, 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 trying to grab their attention. Um, this was the study that failed, which was an attempt to use patient-held checklists to drive up the quality of communication in the emergency department. So the idea was, Atul Gawande says checklists are a great idea because they help people systematically make sure they do all the right things. Uh, if any of you have seen that fantastic film about the, guy, the pilot that lands the plane on the Hudson, he does the engine checklist despite the fact that the, he knows the engines have failed, both engines have failed, but he does the checklist and later apparently he said that it was because it was part of his process of landing the plane and it's just like you do it as a routine and it's so inculcated that you do it even when everything is telling you that the engines aren't working. You still go through the checklist which says, are your engines working? It's like, no, I know that one already, but he did the checklist. So we had this idea to have this fantastic checklist and as part of the study, rather than just introduce the checklist idea and then maybe interview the staff about, and patients about how it was going as a study, I hung around to see what they did. And one of the things that they did was they piled up stuff on top of the little box with the little checklists in, which kind of deters you from handing it out to the patient. Um, and that was what I thought was the low point of that study and is a really good example of why it might have failed because if you keep covering it up with blood pressure cuffs you, you're never going to hand any out um, but the CQC visit was even more amazing because everything got tidied away so that no one could find the box with the stuff in because it was so tidy we couldn't find it and I spent a lot of time like a headless chicken running around the emergency department trying to find the box with the checklists in. Um, the other thing is that I think that is one of the pen boxes there. If you ever do a study in the emergency department and I'm going to take a guess it may apply in other clinical areas 
If you need people to do things that involve pens, I suggest you buy 10 times as many pens as you think you will need because everybody that comes along doesn't take the checklist, but they will take the free pen. And you're just constantly watching people going, oh, pens. So one of my plans is to just simply, you know, when I'm rich and famous is I'm just going to, you know, keep supplying pens for the NHS because clearly you can never have enough pens in the paperless world of the NHS. Uh, anyway, so that's one of the stories about hidden interventions. Um, another study we did was about safety rules in um, operating theatres uh, where people are meant to have a systemised checklist again for um, running surgery. And one of the things that uh, you do uh, when you're operating is that you should make sure that everybody's aware of who the patient is and what the procedure is and some crucial bits of information. And some of that is ideally meant to be presented on a whiteboard in the operating theatre. Seems like a sensible idea. Except that when I was standing in the operating theatre, I'm five foot two, so I am a bit challenged sometimes when it comes to reaching high things in supermarkets. I noticed that this particular theatre had a whiteboard that was so high up that even the really tall surgeon couldn't have possibly reached to fill in the bit that said patient's name and some other details. So they'd got the whiteboard, but they'd made it impossible for people to use which then helps you understand why certain bits of the checklist may not be being followed. But again, if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have understood that that was what was happening in that environment. Um, and then another study we did was of um, NHS 111 and 999 call centres, which are when uh, you're, you phone for an ambulance or you phone NHS 111 for urgent care, uh, your call goes through to um, a non-clinically trained call handler who has a piece of computer software that's an algorithm and they work through that software to decide uh, what kind of care you need. And when I first started studying this software, I was told that it, they, what they wanted was to kind of make it um, possible for a very low skilled person to use and to eliminate the need for a clinician and over the 10 years that I've been studying it more and more clinicians have been brought in to help make this software run and make this process run um, which is often a fascinating uh, aspect of how we introduce technologies that are meant to substitute and it turns out they don't substitute. Um, and one of the things that I managed to notice while I was watching how this call handling software was used was the way that the clinical staff kind of hover in the room and they're just kind of listening out or they're sort of looking to see if there's a call handler over there who's looking a bit agitated or confused. Sometimes the call handlers put their hands up and want the clinicians to come over. And this quote here is for one of the clinicians was actually standing beside the call handler um, and was listening in and was offering assistance about the call to get it to a disposition that was speak to the doctor. So it's almost like she's primed to listen for one side of a telephone conversation and then to chip in little bits of advice to help uh, kind of finesse the processing of that, of that call. So these are the kinds of things that you get when you start looking at 
organisational settings and groups of people and the sorts of things that they do. One of the other things that you get when you hang around is what sociologists and anthropologists call atrocity stories. And these are stories that you sometimes get when you interview people, but I find that sometimes there's something about a formal interview when you're sat in an office recording an interview where people feel that they have to tell you the publicly acceptable versions of, of uh, what goes on with their profession. What you get when people are actually engaged in their practice and you're watching them practicing is they often talk about uh, the terrible things that happened or things they have heard about um, as examples of why they are doing behaving in particular sorts of ways. So one of the anaesthetists on a study that we did of um, anaesthetic practice uh, talked about um, how they, in a, in a particular case, an, an, an anaesthetist gave the anaesthetic without warning the patient and the patient panicked. And this anaesthetist said, I felt uneasy then because the patient sat bolt upright and started grabbing hold of her throat. And I felt because I hadn't warned the patient, I thought the anaesthetologist was going to do it. The patient was scared stiff, stiff. And if that was me, I would have quite a phobia about coming into theatres now. And that alerted us to a whole set of practices which were seen as completely inconsequential by anaesthetists, which are we wrote about subsequently as induction routines, which are little snippets of talk that anaesthetists do with patients as they're inducing anaesthesia. And um, I'm sure that some of you in this room may have had anaesthesia. Um, but basically, anaesthetists tell you lies as they're anaesthetising you. They say things like, this will feel cold. This will feel like gin and tonic. Uh, you'll feel a bit like you've had a few drinks. And they have all these little turns of phrase that they use. And what they are designed to do is stop you doing what that patient did there. Because, as I understand it, when anaesthetic agents are introduced, what you feel often is pain. In the sense that something is being introduced into your arm and it feels a sensation that your natural instinct is to get away from that and ideally sit up, pull away the lines that are introducing that agent that is causing pain and get away. And if you think about the fact that many people having surgery will be nervous anyway and perhaps a bit agitated before they've arrived, notwithstanding having pre-meds. So all of this talk is designed to calm people down and allow them to normalise the process. And it's not taught formally, you learn it by osmosis. So the apprenticeship system of training anaesthetists and surgeons allows them to learn that they, there are things that they need to say. And then everybody picks up their own little pattern that they use for doing anaesthetic induction. And again, I don't think any of the anaesthetists would have told us about that behaviour because it wasn't important to them but we picked it up because of an atrocity story. And similarly, there was another, in the safety rules project, um, 
the, there's a lot of uh, work around the, the safety rules and the checklists around the introduction of particular um, drugs and agents as part of various processes. And there are particular things that have huge risks associated with them. And one of them is the use of, of, of heparin mentioned here. And this cardiologist said, I have to make sure this is given. It gets written on the board, but it must not be written until it is actually given. He says he likes to hear a 20 minute warning from another team member and that it needs to be given and to have this confirmed at the time. And then he goes on to tell me a story of a colleague who experienced a fatality of a patient because the heparin was not administered. So this is a, a checklist rule following behavior uh, where somebody in an operating theatre said, we're going to give this now, and it got written on a board, so everybody started behaving as if the drug had been given, and it hadn't actually been given, and it caused a fatality. And those stories are hugely important to clinicians, because they are the things that inculcate safety practices. You know, it's like it gets, it drills it into their bones. Um, so these atrocity stories often come out when you're hanging around and you've got to know people, they might just say that by way of explanation for something that they're doing. And again, they may not tell you that in an interview, although there are some, um, some examples of these kinds of stories occurring in interviews, but they're often really helpful in alerting you to important things that you might not otherwise notice. So... One of the issues in doing this kind of research, which I think you might have covered uh, so far, those of you that are on the qualitative course, um, is this idea that in qualitative research, but particularly observation and ethnography, the researcher is the research instrument. So in survey research, you have your questionnaire and you give your questionnaire to people. Um, but in this kind of research, it's all about the person doing the research. And there are a number of um, articles talking about how this is really great and enables you to get fantastic data, but it also can be uh, disabling or limiting in terms of what you're able to do. So I've just pulled out some of the examples of that from my own experience. So I'm not clinically trained. I have worked in ethnographic teams with people who are clinically trained. And I've spent 16 years uh, in Southampton and have got to know particularly some of the Southampton clinical settings quite well. So negotiating access is something that can be easy or difficult depending on some of those characteristics. So if I say that I want to go and observe the emergency department in Southampton General Hospital, I can get in there. If I say I want to do that here in Oxford, that might be a bit more tricky. If one of you says you want to do it and you don't have that magic professor thing at the front of your name, maybe you'll find that more or less difficult. So negotiating access can be problematic depending on who you are, where you're coming from, who your contacts are. And if you're an insider in the organisation, that may facilitate you getting in, or it may be that people don't want to let you in because they think you, you know all of their dirty secrets. 
The problem of establishing rapport in a situation and in a setting is one of those things that is written about endlessly in the textbooks as if you can just kind of switch it on and switch it off. And I, what I've found over the years is that it's very dependent on the, the team that you're studying and the setting that you're in and the kind of work that they're doing, but also silly things like how you're feeling. If you're feeling nervous or trepidation about what you're going to observe, then actually you carry that with you and establishing rapport with the group. Or if you feel intimidated by the group, um, or members of the group, that can be an issue. And again, that might vary whether you're an insider or an outsider. There's some lovely stuff about the tacit and taken for granted knowledge in a particular setting. If you're a clinician, you're, you've already got hardwired information about a setting that you think you know. That can be great because it can fast track you to seeing really interesting things, but it can also blinker you to seeing things that you need to see because you make assumptions about the behaviours that you're watching. Um, and in the anaesthetic study that we did, uh, Dawn Goodwin, who was an anaesthetic nurse by background, did some of the, uh, did the bulk of the ethnographic observation. And myself and Maggie Moore, who were medical um, and uh, STS sociologists, did the other observation. And sometimes we did the observation together. And we did that partly to answer the question, did it matter who was doing the observation? And one of the gratifying things was that the only real difference between what I wrote in my notes and what Dawn, as a clinically trained person, wrote in her notes was she knew all the fancy names for the things inside the syringes. And I wrote down things like the big white syringe and then afterwards said, what does the big white syringe have in it? Because I didn't know what it was. Um, but we actually managed to have notes that were comparable. But nonetheless, you can also build up knowledge when you're in a setting over time where you start to take things for granted. Um, a lovely example of the taken for grantedness of the researcher was on a surgical study I did um, uh, towards the end of my time working in the operating theatres, one of the surgeons was so used to me hanging around in scrubs that he said, oh, do you want to scrub in on this? <laughs> and there was a brief moment where I thought, I know how to do this operation now. <laughs> and I thought, no, actually, I'm a sociologist, probably shouldn't. Um, but uh, these things are, uh, you do need to think through what it is that you may or may not be seeing. As you get to know people in a, in a setting, they may say things to you that are confidential. Sometimes they helpfully say, this is off the record, and you're like, okay, it's off the record, but I'm still hearing it, it's going in my head, I'm going to be thinking about it all the way home. Uh, so you, at least you've got some signal that maybe you won't write it down in capital letters in your notes because they've told you it's off, off the record. Other times, people will just have highly confidential conversations in front of you because you're part of the scenery. And they've got used to you being there, particularly if you're in a surgical setting and you're wearing scrubs and you look like everybody else. 
Um, so uh, there are some issues there and Dawn Goodwin uh, led on a paper from the Anaesthetic Project that talks about situational ethics and how we might deal with some of those uh, issues. And finally there's an issue around your responsibility as a researcher because the textbooks often make great play of this idea that we're not meant to mess with the field in any way you know we're meant to be there as observers but we really shouldn't be um, getting you know getting too involved in it and if you do clinical studies and you're not a clinician you're constantly told you know don't touch stuff because you're not a clinician and for goodness sake don't look like you're doing anything clinical because that's really not allowed but then there are issues about what do you do if something comes up that is problematic so the classic one is a safeguarding issue what do you do if you feel that there is a safeguarding issue for somebody in the setting so one of my researchers uh, was in a situation um, observing um, ambulance crews and went to a house where she then had concerns about the children that were in that house and the plan was that the ambulance crew were going to leave because they felt that there was nothing that they could do but this researcher was concerned about the children so rang social services and waited because she felt that was the appropriate thing to do. There are those sorts of issues. Um, and notwithstanding the injunction not to touch anything clinical, when I was doing the ambulance study, I became a drip stand on Southampton Common. It's one of my finest moments, standing there in the dark, going, I'm a drip stand. I'm holding this drip for you because you haven't got enough hands and we were, on, we were in um, one of those ambulance cars uh, so he'd done the drip and was waiting for the ambulance to come and collect the patient but needed to do lots of other things so I stood there and I kind of knew that I was not meant to be holding anything clinical or do it, but what do you do in that situation? So there are judgment calls that you make so the textbooks will tell you don't touch and the health and safety people will tell you don't touch and then there are some times when you have to think, well, what should I do? And my response to that has always been, what would a good citizen do? So I'm not clinical, so I don't have clinical responsibility in terms of, despite having watched the, tele you know, the television and film things where they put biros through people's uh, windpipes to, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be doing that, but I will hold a drip stand. And I have held the hand of patients in stressful situations because I'm a person in the room who can do that while everybody else is saving lives and doing other much more important stuff if they need if they say they want somebody to hold their hand or they're feeling frightened I will say would you like me to hold your hand would that make it or would you like me to talk to you and we could talk about something that might distract you um, and I feel that that is okay but there are textbooks that will tell you that's a real no-no There's something about this embodied research. So this idea of the researcher as the research instrument. And one of the things that we did on the ambulance study was in order to get ethics, we had to have a load of procedures for what do you do if you're on the ambulance and the patient or the relative says, we don't want you observing this. So we wrote this thing in the ethics thing where we drew the diagram of the ambulance and we explained that Cathy will be sat 
in one of these seats in the back of the cab unless the patient says no, in which case she will move to the front and sit with the driver. Um, now, I will tell you this now, and I do realise this is going to be podcast, so I'm now breaking uh, you know, a secret. That line there on the ambulance cab, there's a door that's meant to shut with the idea that when the driver's driving the ambulance, they're not being distracted by anything that's going on in the back. Nearly every ambulance that I went in had a very carefully uh, constructed piece of something, box, uh, plastic cup, um, the stray bit of medical equipment that was used to prop those doors open so that the cab drivers could talk to the people working on patients in the back, which meant that the, com the real confidentiality of me sitting in the front was broken, but I decided to let that go in the interests of research about ambulances. Um, and there's one of those things about doing research on ambulances that I'd, I'd done the thing of talking myself through, what will I do if we go to a road traffic accident and there's children that have been killed or, you know, and I'd done all of the head talk about what do I do and in fact I set up a mentoring buddy system with somebody else that was doing ambulance uh, and emergency department observations so that I would have somebody to debrief with and I also had a member of the clinical team who said they would take supervisory responsibility for me. So I'd done all of that and I'd done all the stuff about what do I do if I get blood on me, what do I do if somebody's violent, what do I do if somebody's sick on me, you know I'd done all of that. And I'd done the how am I going to take notes going at speed and I'd practiced in the back of the car. I'd got, you know, I'd said to my partner, drive, drive as fast as you can within the speed limit and I'm just going to see what I can write. So I was like, yeah, I can do this. And one of my colleagues said to me, um, do you get car sick at all? Uh, because you're going to be in a box going at 90 miles an hour and there are no windows and lots of people get car sick. I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get car Thankfully, I didn't. Uh, but there were things that I hadn't even thought about as an embodied researcher going into that setting. Um, and then there was just the thing about actually ambulance work, you feel that embodiedness. And I think there are many other research settings in, in healthcare um, where you feel that. So there was this lovely occasion when uh, it was a cold and dark night and the road was icy, it was winter, and the ambulance skid at one point. Um, and the, dr you know, the drive was great, but it was a bit scary as we were skidding on the ice. Uh, and then we turned off, we went under a bridge, we went across a field, we went along something that on Google Maps was a road, but it didn't feel like a road as far as I was concerned. Um, uh, and then we arrived at a couple of houses in the middle of the field and we didn't have any mobile phone reception. That's a little bit scary um, and a little bit unnerving. And I'm glad it was me doing it at, you know, an age close to what I am now rather than maybe the 20-year-old me starting out. Um, so uh, I think those sorts of things are just interesting and often when you read about the embodied researcher um, it's written about in a way that doesn't maybe bring some of that uh, light to life. Um, there's also the stuff about safety wear. There's often a lot in ethics about how when you're doing qualitative research how you're not going to damage anybody else. Um, but sometimes that attention isn't paid to how you might look after yourself as the researcher. And the very first studies I did 30 years ago 
it wasn't until I went to work in the US that I had proper um, occupational health and safety briefings about what to do with uh, blood contamination and body fluids and all of those. So I've been you know, merrily going into operating theatres in the UK, um, often being introduced as, this is Cathy, she's a social worker. And I'm like, no, 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 sociologist, slightly different. Um, and, uh, and sometimes not being introduced at all, which um, I feel quite disturbed about now. At the time, I was grateful because I was doing it for my PhD. I was just so grateful to get into the setting. I look back on that now and think this was completely unethical. And now I make sure that patients, even if they're going to be anaesthetised when I'm in the room, know that I'm going to be in the room and what I'm doing even if I'm not actually collecting data about them, because often I'm watching what the surgeons or the anaesthetists are doing. Um, so, again, this is one of those examples of uh, things that you learn in settings about safety. So one of the things in the interventional radiology settings is wearing lead gowns to protect you from radiation. Um, and there was this lovely conversation with uh, one of the clinicians who said, you know, you mustn't drop these lead gowns on the floor. They're really expensive and you need to look hard and you mustn't drop them on the floor. They have to go on the special hangers and they're really heavy. So when the radiation's not being used, everybody takes their gowns off and everybody puts them on the back of the chair or on the table and sometimes they slide off onto the floor. Um, so you notice what's going on with the safety equipment um, and that was, that was interesting. Uh, this, by the way, is a picture of me um, that uh, Glenn Roberts owns and uh, frightens me with every now and again. That's me doing the treatment centre project that we did when we went to visit a treatment centre that was being built. So that's why I'm in a hard hat for that one. I don't always dress like that when I'm doing um, ethnographic work. Um, and then in another example from that same study, um, one of the uh, clinicians talked to me about the, they have these headband uh, little clip-on um, dosimeters that um, tell you how much radiation you've been exposed to and they're designed to fit on glasses except that they can often only fit on the bridge of the glasses which means you can't actually see because they kind of obscure your vision um, so they some people put them on their headbands or they clip them on a bit of their cap and she wears contact lenses with clear protective glasses over the top the top and she's describing all of that and then as we're talking she goes oh and I've lost it again um, and she has to go and find another one and there was a bit of me thinking I wonder if she hadn't been talking to me whether she would even have known and these things are meant to record the dosage that you receive over a month or something um, so you learn things about the safety wear both as the embodied researcher having to wear it um, and uh, by talking to the people in the setting um, I thought I'd be honest about an unnerving situation. I have had lots of unnerving situations, including deciding that I would get into a fast red sports car with a surgeon after having watched and operating this because I thought I might get really good data. Um, and I did get really good data, but I was very scared. And I would say that's a step too far. Never get in a sports car with a surgeon because they just don't seem to know what the speed limits are um, or maybe that's changed um, but this was a more recent situation on one of the studies that I did um, and this was uh, anaesthetists 
are lovely people and I think they do amazing things um, but there are bits of downtime in operations and one of the jokes is that that's when the anaesthetist has a snooze and this particular anaesthetist was looking at his mobile phone in the bit in the operation where he didn't need to be paying quite so much attention to what was going on and they were talking about holidays and things like that and, and talk, reading tweets out and things like that and then he started looking me up on Twitter and he went through as many Catherine Popes as he could find on Twitter and was reading out their bios and guessing whether it was me. And I was trying to do my, I'm a professional researcher, I'm not going to rise to this, I'm not going to challenge it, I'm simply going to observe it, I'm going to write some notes about it and I'm feeling a little bit nervous and I'm thinking, oh, what did I tweet about last night and what's going, you know, have I put anything on Twitter that I would feel embarrassed about in this situation? I do have a rule about not tweeting when I'm drunk but nonetheless I'm probably sweary on Twitter as I can be in lecture theatres. Um, so I was starting to feel a little bit nervous about this because it felt like my life was being intrigued. Although that's a public space, it wasn't a space that I had chosen necessarily to share with that surgical team. And they didn't know about my political activism uh, and my role um, in the trade union. You know, they didn't know any of that and I didn't feel they needed to know about that, but it was all on Twitter. And later, as I was reading the notes it made me think that actually that was, I, I kind of understood what that pushback was because I was in their space and this was partly this person saying, you're in my space watching me, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, I can do that back to you. And it made me think differently about the data and about my role. Um, so sometimes I think we have these unnerving situations or things happen in field work and we feel a bit uncomfortable. And I think we need to get curious about that and question what's going on because I think you can do some further learning from those kinds of situations. Um, there's a load of stuff about status passage in the anthropological literature and in the sociological literature, which is basically just this idea that we move through different kinds of status um, as, as, as we're in a work situation or, a, or during the life course. And I just want to reflect on my own status passages because I think... When I started doing observational research, I was 21 and I'd never been in a clinical environment. I'd done a sociology degree and I'd worked in Sainsbury's and supermarkets and those kinds of things and I'd never been in a clinical situation. And I think I was really naive and I was fresh-faced and I was female and petite and I was studying... Um, urological surgeons which at the time I think there was one female urological surgeon I hope that's changed now I haven't looked it up recently but I think that I was very naive and that if I did that study again now I know I, because of all the other studies I've done I would have some cumulative wisdom about the settings and about the people and about the interactions um, and I think just acknowledging that um, might be helpful. 
There's a load of stuff in the literature about this thing called going native, which is the idea that you over-identify with the people that you're studying to the point where you can't actually see what's going on because you just feel like them. And I think there are ways that you can counter that by making really good field notes and being reflective about what you're seeing. But an example of that is that I don't think I feel the same way going into surgical environments as I did when I was 20, 21. When I first went into a surgical environment, I wrote notes about the smell the temperature and the bizarreness of I, I wrote pages about how weird it was that I got to see the insides of people's bodies when they never got to see the insides of their bodies and how weird it was that every surgeon opens people's abdomens and goes oh I wasn't expecting that and I wrote stuff about that because I was fascinated by it and horrified by it and discomforted by it and now I walk in and I'm like, oh, what's that kit that they've got there? And oh, what, you know, and I, and I might have read about the surgical procedure or seen it before. And I think that's changed how I do things and see things. So I need to reflect on that. And if I'm working in a team with more and less experienced people, we need to use that to counter the going native and, and over identifying with the field. And then I think also linked to that, um, I think I was a mascot in the first studies that I did. I think there was something particularly amongst the Euro neurological surgeons who were mainly men, uh, as I said, uh, which was, we've got this young woman following us around. It's quite fun because that doesn't normally happen in our working lives. And we can kind of go, oh, I've got the young woman following me today. Um, and I was... And that gives you access to things, but it also closes that, you know, so I think I was told things that maybe they thought I wouldn't understand. Um, and uh, maybe I'm sure there were things that I just didn't clue into and didn't understand. And now if I go in, I've got the baggage of being a professor, being, old, you know, I'm 53, so I'm older. You know, there's all sorts of things about who I am now and what people expect where I wonder how that is also influencing what's going on. And I just hold that up as being aware of those passages because, again, I think when, we, when the textbooks and you know, when I write about these methods, we tend not to think about those things. But it does matter that I'm white and older and from South London and not clinical. Those things do matter and short because that means I see and hear particular things and I feel particular things, and that matters. Um, and I thought, just to end on a bit of controversy, I don't know how many of you saw uh, that, because I started with Irving Goffman, his daughter, Alice, uh, wrote a fascinating book based on a very long-term ethnography of uh, what she calls fugitive life in an American city, basically living in a very deprived area uh, and watching uh, the gang uh, and crime activity of uh, a small group of people in a, an, an urban deprived setting. Um, I still think this is a fantastic ethnography. I enjoyed reading it and I think I would commend it to any of you that haven't read it. 
but there was a huge furore about this book. Uh, there have been some, I think, important criticisms of um, its focus on criminality um, as its key theme and set of messages and the portrayal of uh, black uh, Americans as uh, being involved in crim criminal activity. There are what uh, Lubeck calls uncertain vignettes in that there are some episodes in this ethnography where Alice Goffman describes things which make it appear that she probably participated in things that were criminal activities. Um, and there's some debate about uh, what her um, role was uh, and whether she should or could be prosecuted. So there's a bunch of ethical um, issues and, and dilemmas. And um, I think that part of the reason for the furore around this particular study is because some of these things are present in a lot of the ethnographic work that we do, but on a lower level. So I think that some of the things that I've described to you, they're not up there with committing a felony, but... Um, the fact that I've mentioned that an anaesthetist was playing with their mobile phone while they were doing an operation, for example. Should I, should I be telling you that? It's a piece of my data. I've anonymised it. Um, there are issues there. Um, and then there are issues about how, how these things get reported and how we protect people and how we um, allow people to see what it is that we've done. And... As a final, uh, in, having started with those injunctions from, uh, from Irving Goffman and Martin Hammersley, Mitchell Dunia, who has also written some stunning, stunning ethnographies, which I would commend to you, um, says, we can improve our methods by engaging in practices that reassure our readers that they can trust that they know how they have been convinced. It is a lack of transparency that results in a sense that the wool is being pulled over a reader's eyes. Our goal should be to institutionalise methods that make it normative for us to be as upfront as possible about how we have achieved our effects. So part of what I've wanted to do tonight is be open about some of the stuff that maybe sometimes gets hidden behind the formal reporting of ethnographies and the kinds of observational research that we do in healthcare settings, because I think that will get us to this place. Uh, and we will start to have um, ethnographies that we can really engage with and that, that we can then use to make a difference to healthcare and healthcare practices. So there is a slide with references on if you want them. Some of the references were embedded. There may be some people here who are desperate for the references, so you can ask me for them. Um, and then I have to acknowledge various things about the studies being funded by great and wonderful um, organisations that give you money but then make you say that everything you say has to be attributed to you not to them so that's what that slide is and I particularly want to um, at the bottom of that slide acknowledge that most of this research that I've talked about has been done in teams with amazing people and all the best bits of it is obviously their work not mine um, and that's me and I can take questions thank you